How do you speak after that? <laughs> Praise God. What a wonderful video emphasizing Father's Day, which is next week. But uh, I had it played because of the adoption. And uh, later in my message, I will be mentioning adoption is one of my points, sub-points. And the uh, question is, uh, if you see something like that, have you ever thought about adoption? Have you prayed about it? There's all kinds of excuses, reasons why, but it's something that we need to pray about. Is God adopted us into his family. You know, what, what would happen if God said, I have too many kids? Or, you know, he's a different race. Or, I don't have the money. Uh, all these different things that come into my mind when we're thinking about adoption. You know, you know, what if I bring a child into my family and they cause a lot of problems? Well, look at your own kids if you want problems. You know, and all these different reasons, in fact, of, it didn't, wouldn't it be something if, even if you had problems with a child, <clears throat> wouldn't it be better for them to be in a Christian family having a problems than out in a pagan family? At least where they could hear the gospel and have an opportunity to respond to the love of Christ, the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They may, they may spurn it. Uh, but our obligation is to love them and care for them and, and, and give them an opportunity to, to respond to the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mario and I have been gone for a few weeks. It's always good to be back with family. Uh, she had cataract surgery. And uh, it's really kind of embarrassing. Now she can see. And she looked at me and she said she was shocked. <laughs> Who is this old man? And, uh, but uh, she's seen, we were in ministry, several churches, and, and, uh, uh, but we always miss our home church. Thank you so much for being the people you are, the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, in your bulletin today, you received a booklet, uh, Building World Vision. I adapted this several years ago, and they printed it in the Philippines recently. And, and uh, I have a copy for you, written by Paul Brokwith. He's a leader in the, in the, with young people. Uh, he's from Boston, and uh, God has really used him in missions as well as working with young people in the United States and Canada and the world. And he, he wrote this mainly for young people, Building World Vision. How do we teach in our, in our families, in our churches, in our fellowship groups, how to, to lift up our eyes and look on the fields of the world that are ready for harvest? And I, I trust you'll enjoy this booklet. And look at your Bibles. The last uh, three verses... Colossians 1, 27, 28, and 29, which our Pastor Joe read. Look at the last phrase in verse 27. This is my text. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man. How many? Every man. That we may present every man complete in Christ. And then he says this, For this purpose I labor, striving according to his power. See, I labor, but according to his power. According to the, his power, which mightily works within me. Now, for the few moments we have this morning, I'll try to go through this uh, passage uh, dealing with four main points. Number one, our message. Number two, our method. Number three, our motive. And number four, our means. Look at verse 28. Our message. We proclaim him. <clears throat> him is the Lord Jesus Christ. We proclaim him who is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, this morning I read again Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he, Christ, was pierced through for our transgressions. You may be sitting there today saying, Did Christ really die for me? Can God really love me for who I am, for what I've done, for the background I've come from, from the wicked things that I have done, from the thoughts that I have almost every day? <laughs> Can God really love me? Look at this verse. Christ was pierced through for your transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, how many? All of us. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us 
has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. The sum and substance of the gospel are in the word substitution and satisfaction. Christ in our place, on the cross, for our sin, for our complete redemption, and for our righteousness. We need to take this glorious gospel to those people around us, as well as beyond us. Beyond us, as well as around us. Not either are, but both and. John 14, 6, one of my favorite verses, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but through me. Without the way, there's no going. Without the truth, there's no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. Several years ago, <clears throat> Ken Hughes, a former pastor in Wheaton, uh, spoke at our church in a, a series of meetings. And uh, I was reading one of his books this week, and he, he told the story of an elderly woman in Africa. She was old, uneducated, and blind. A missionary lady shared the gospel with this old lady who everybody else had just ignored. And she came to faith in Christ. And what can an old, uneducated, blind woman do? As she was discipled, and she really fell in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, she, she wanted to share with others. But what could she do? So she took her French Bible, which she couldn't see because it was a French-speaking Africa. And uh, they, even though they had their local languages, the education for the higher learning was in French. So she had the, she had the missionary lady uh, take a little French New Testament, and she turned to John 3.16. She said, underline it in red. So she underlined John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so she took this New Testament, and she, she made her way down to, to sit outside of a, a local kind of higher education boys' high school where they were studying in French. And when she heard the, the boys getting out of school that day, she, she, would, she would call them, young men, boys, come. And some of them did. One would come over out of respect, and two would come over out of respect. Maybe three would come over. And for, so she sat there for several weeks. And as they would come over, she would say, do you know French? Well, man, proudly they said, well, yes. Do you know how to read French? Oh, yes, we do. Well, would you read this, please? And she'd hold the Bible, the, the New Testament, and they would read John 3.16. And then she would say, do you know what that means? And they would say, no, I don't know what that means. She said, well, I'll tell you. And she shared the glorious gospel of Christ. Now, this is in the book. Many of them came to faith in Christ. They heard the good news and responded. And Ken Hughes says, over the years, 24 of those young men became pastors. From this old, uneducated, blind woman. Sharing the good news of Christ. Our message. That's our message. We proclaim him. The resurrected living Savior. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Point number two. Our message now. Our method. Look at verse 28. Paul says, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Notice those three, three things. Admonish, teach, but you with all wisdom. Number one, admonish. This means to stimulate, to encourage, to plead, to plead with people, to be reconciled to God, to trust God, to obey God, to live for God. First Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, Paul says, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and employing each of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God. In other words, that we would live for God, that we be a testimony for Him as we go out wherever we go. Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. And number two, he said, our, not only, our method is also teaching. Christianity is a life, but it's a life built on doctrine, on teaching. In other words, what does the Word of God teach? 
about whatever. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's what the Word of God does. To know the Word of God and to know why it is the Word of God. The Word of God is inspired and inerrant and sufficient. And we're to spend daily time in the Word of God. To have a motto, such as I have a motto, no Bible, no breakfast. You may want to have something like that also. In other words, to put a priority on the Word of God. The words of Hebrews 5.14, very interesting. It says to know the Word of God so that your senses are trained to discern good and evil. In other words, we, our senses, trained in, the, in the, the Word of God by His Spirit, trains us to think so our own senses can discern what is good and evil. I read a quote yesterday from Dr. G. Campbell Morgan. The world hates Christian people if it sees Christ in them. The measure in which the world agrees with us and says we are a fine type of Christian is the measure in which we are unlike Christ. Uh, the country preacher from North Carolina, Vance Havner, who died many years ago, said, Our Lord makes it plain that because we are not of the world, therefore the world hates us. This is the notion, there's the notion going around that around these days that we should hobnob with Sodom and get chummy with Gomorrah in order to influence them for good. God's people are to be strangers and pilgrims in the world. You know, we're just passing through. And the world hates them as it did their Lord because they testify of it that its works are evil. Have you trained your senses to know good and evil because of your time that you're spending in the Word of God? Psalm 111.10 says, The fear reverence of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. In other words, to fully know what one needs to do, we need to obey God's Word. So let's discuss a few things this morning. What does the Word of God say about... I've listed four things. What does the Word of God say about righteousness? What does the Word of God say about religion, true religion, relationships? And I even use another R, racism. For about righteousness. What does the Word of God say about righteousness? I read Titus 2, 11 this morning. 12 and 14. Listen to this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men... Instructing, and another word for that instructing, discipling us, and continually teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present world. Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, for what reason? To redeem us from every lawless deed. That's interesting, isn't it? This might be controversial, but let me read. My, my wife has a wonderful devotional, The Quiet Place by Nancy DeMoss. And uh, she writes this morning on this topic. Recently, a friend handed me a novel she recommended as a very sweet story worth reading. It was indeed a beautiful, written, sensitive book. Several chapters into it, however, a female character was introduced who used profanity liberally and set out to seduce a male friend who lived nearby. Some may... I, excuse me. I didn't keep the book long enough to find out how it ended. Some may consider that decision extreme, unnecessary, or even legalistic. 
But it was a choice born out of a desire to fill my mind with influences that intensify my hunger for God and to avoid those that would dull or diminish my love for Him. Some choices are not always easy to make, but they produce blessing and benefit in your life that will far surpass anything that the world can offer. When I first saw my wife, personal illustration, I met her at a Bible camp, Union Gospel Mission. I was a program director at a camp in Posbo. And we had these inner city junior high kids who came for a week from the central area of Seattle. Rough kids. All of the girls that we know of on this 11, 12, 13, had already been involved in sexual activities. You know, terrible lifestyle they lived and so forth. And as we sought to reach them with the gospel, we had about 30 counselors. But I noticed how the girls gravitated to Margaret. It wasn't because she was like them. I mean, I'm the first one Margaret ever kissed. She knew none about those activities that went on with these 12 and 13, 14. You know, but they gravitated to her. They gravitated to her because they knew she loved them, cared for them, talked to them, listened to them. But she wasn't like them. <laughs> her lifestyle was that of godliness and righteousness. Something that Scripture talks about pure. So what does the Word of God say about righteousness? What about religion? I was talking to a friend this last week. He, he doesn't use the word religion, doesn't like it. But religion is used seven times in the Bible, and five of them are very positive. And the one I like is one of my favorite verses, James one twenty seven. James 127. It says, true religion, pure religion in the sight of God our Father is to care for orphans in their distress. So a question today about true religion. Have you practiced true religion in your life? By caring for an orphan. 150 million orphans worldwide. 13 million orphans in Africa because of AIDS. So do you have a special <clears throat> love? And Look, our church. Does our church have a special ministry with a major part in finances for orphans? Elders, a good question for you. Deacons, Sunday school teachers, leaders. Uh, this is a godly church. Do we practice true religion? This, by the way, this is not a condemnation. This is just something to share as an example of what the Word of God says. Do we practice true religion according to this verse, which is pure and undefiled in the sight of God? Not just my thinking, your thinking, what somebody writes, but in the sight of God to care for orphans. Do you promote and encourage adoption? Have you considered adoption? Why not? Prejudice? Expense, racism, oh, we can't adopt. She's not white. I can adopt this little boy. He's a mixed race. Oh, that girl's cute, but she's Chinese. I can't adopt a Chinese. I, uh, he, he's not Indian. Or maybe it's because of expense. Too expensive. Too expensive. Nowadays, it's costing around $20,000 to adopt a child from Africa or China. It's almost getting as expensive right here in the United States. So you say, too expensive. So somebody in our church uh, is going to adopt a little girl, a little boy from China or Africa, and he said, well, I hope they get the money, $20,000. Where are they going to get it? What do you mean, they? What about us? 
What about us? We know they don't really have the money, but they have a, 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 a burden to, to adopt. Why don't us, why don't we do something about it? You know, it's, it's $20,000, $20, a lot of money, divided by 100 of us adults. It's what? $200 a piece. Now, you may not have $200, and I don't have $200 this week, but we could save $200 in the next month. We could do that. And we could pay for that child. We could, we could take care of that child. We, we could give that child a home. I could afford $200 to practice true religion. And so could you. What about uh, adoption? But what about helping ministries who, 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 have, who take care of orphans? You know, my favorite organization, a mission that works with children around the world, is Compassion, Compassion International. And they have a sponsorship program of, of children, needy children, many of them orphans. And uh, it's $41 a month. Uh, my friend in the Philippines, Noel Pabiano, uh, when I saw them two years ago, they were sponsoring 50,000 children. Now it's 100,000 children. Who pays for that? You and me. We, we pay for it. Yeah, are you doing that? You know, my son, Robbie, has a school called Redempto, working with children in slums. Sponsoring something like that. What about sending a street child to camp in the Philippines or in Africa or in Latin America? You can do this for $30. $30 to practice true religion. Yes, what does the Word of God say about righteousness, true religion? But now what does the Bible say about relationships? Relationships. That's where you and I are all the time. We read in Colossians 3, Put on a heart of compassion and kindness. To put it on. You know, don't stand there with nothing on. Put it on. Put on a heart of compassion and kindness and gentleness and goodness and meekness. And, you know, these things are, you know, when you say those words, they're, they're comfortable words, aren't they? Aren't they? They're comfortable. To be around people are, who are kind and compassionate and humble. Uh, what it does for us is it builds us up in the Lord. You know, I want to be like that. And, and the Bible tells me to be like that. You know, he's washed me clean with all these, all the, you know, I think all these filthy rags he's washed me clean from. But now I better put something on. And what clothing to put on. So how do, how do we do this? What about serving others? In other words, manners. Opening the door for others and uh, giving others our seat. Letting others go first. Helping the elderly across the street. <laughs> now make sure they want to go across the street. You know, but uh, to show respect. When we go to a wedding, we, we dress properly. We go to a memorial service, we, we dress to show respect. And honoring the person, we had a memorial last week. Believe it or not, this lady who is 95, who is esteemed around the world, Virginia Pernoyer, who's loved, who's faced, who's over the internet, so much was written about her. She's one that phoned Margaret and me uh, in 1978 and encouraged us to adopt this little boy and a little girl. And I said, well, Virginia, let us pray about it. And she said, no, no, Doug, you don't have to pray about it. We've already prayed. This Virginia. And I couldn't believe. I'm not into dress, but I couldn't believe how people dress so, not just, you know, you know casually, but sloppy casually. Wearing their jeans and tennis shoes and, and shorts to honor this woman. This is embarrassing, huh? You know, when you take your wife out to, to a fancy dinner or something, you, you want to celebrate your 25th anniversary, and you, 
you're taking her down to Space Needle. You've had to steal the gold out of your false teeth to pay for the ticket. And, and, uh, you've, and, you, and, and she comes out of the room all dressed up, and you got on your old sweaty, old sweatshirt and jeans and, 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 and tennis shoes, athletic shoes. And, and the reason you say that and wear that is because I feel comfortable in this. Not realizing to honor your wife. You know, I'm just showing, you know, showing respect. That's how we practice compassion and kindness to other people. Modesty in our dress. Uh, ladies, don't embarrass your husband. Uh, young people, don't embarrass your parents. And especially don't, don't call shame on the name of Christ by dressing immodestly. What about showing compassion in our relationships? Praying for others and uh, listening to them and uh, assisting them in their needs. Uh, helping them if they have a need. It's, what about showing kindness to others? That's relationship. Showing kindness to other people. You read about God, the description of God, the loving kindness of God. You ever tell me you read, you see, the loving kindness of God. The, the kindness of God leads to repentance. And therefore, we're to be kind. Two years ago, I spoke in a Filipino church in Los Angeles. And, and Filipinos have a motto. We don't eat, we don't meet. So in other words, we had a, we had a meal after the church. Oh, we do that here too, don't we? We had a meal after the church, and, and uh, Filipinos always eat. They serve a, a big meal. It was a small church. And as me, I saw, I saw a homeless person over in the corner. And I went over and sat with him. Man, you could smell him all the way to the other side of Los Angeles. And as we were talking, he was, he was, he was happy. You could tell he had a, a mental problem. But we still carried on a conversation. And I was asking about how he made a living and how he gathered his bottles, and he showed me out, took me out to the cart, and showed me all this stuff and everything. And I said to him, I said, uh, do you know the gospel? Oh, yes. They've told me the gospel many times here. I said, I wanted to know if he really understood. So I said, what is the gospel? So he told me. And as we, we talked, I said, why do you come to this church? And he didn't hesitate for a minute. He said, because they're so kind to me. They're so kind to me. Is that, is that how you're described? Last week at this memorial service, uh, there, was a re- there was a reception afterwards. And uh, a lot of elderly people there. And uh, this one elderly lady was, had a, a care, uh, care person with her taking care of her because you could tell she, she had some physical problems and uh, she might have been suffering from... Uh, dementia or something, but as we walked by, she stopped and looked at me, and she said, I know you. I didn't know her, but she said, I know you. And I've spoken at this church before, and and I was surprised at that. I didn't think she knew anything. And uh, I said, oh, really? She said, may I ask you a question? Do you know the Walter Jesperson family? Walter Jesperson's my, my wife's father. She's a Jesperson. And I said, well, yes, I do. She said, oh, do you know Margaret Jesperson? <laughs> and I didn't want to embarrass her. So I said, oh, yes, she's my best friend. And she said, oh, that's wonderful. Margaret is such a nice person. I pointed her, pointed Margaret out to her a few minutes later. Margaret doesn't know who she is. How did that woman know that? You know, it's interesting. Even in a, a foggy mind, how we can still gravitate to kindness. To kindness. I asked our son Robbie when he became engaged to Deanna, who's now his wife. I said, Robbie, uh, why, why do you like Deanna so much? He thought for a few moments and said, well, Dad, 
mainly for three reasons. Number one, she's so much like the Lord Jesus. Number two, she's so much like mom. And number three, she's so kind to everybody. Oh, you know, I would like to have that reputation, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? You know, what the Bible says about religion and relationships, what about, what about racism? Colossians 3.11 says, No distinction, but Christ is all and in all. Caste and classism and prejudice and discrimination. A friend of mine in Manila said, I'm a Chinese by race, but I'm a Christian by grace. I'm a Chinese by race. I'm an Indian by race. I'm an African by race, but I'm a Christian by grace. Now, whether you are an Indian or an Asian or an African or a Latino or a Caucasian or whatever, remember eight things. Number one, biblical truths have preeminence over culture and heritage. I know this is hard for us to hear, some of us. Let me repeat that phrase. Biblical truths have preeminence over culture and heritage. John chapter 4, number 2. Every human being has common ancestry in Adam and Noah. Genesis 1, 8, 9, and Acts 17. Number three, all humans are sinners and in need of a Savior. All of us. Romans 3, 9 to 22. Number four, Jesus is the only Savior. There's only one way for a Muslim to come to Christ, for a Hindu to come from Christ, for an Indian to come to Christ. There's only one way, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the only Savior. Number five, those justified through his blood of Christ are now part of the family of God. Number six, therefore, the Bible teaches us to accept all believers as sisters and brothers because we're all family. We're all family. Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. Number seven, love for the other believers is a mark of true faith. 1 John 3, 14 to 18. If one of your first concerns about accepting another person in Christ is what nationality he is or what caste he is or the education he has or whatever is not a mark of a true believer. And number eight, love for other Christians is a testimony of true discipleship. Jesus said, because of their love for one another, they're my disciples. By the way, as we travel, Margaret and I travel to Africa and Canada and Latin America and, 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 and Europe, we have met many people who do not like Americans, who do not like Canadians, or people from any other country but their own. But our desire, even in their dislike and hatred, is not necessarily their friendship but that Jesus Christ might become their friend, that they would fall in love with Jesus Christ through the gospel of him. So let me ask a question about these four things. Is it uh, important, therefore, for, as true believers to obey his word? Last Sunday, pastor spoke in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. At the close of his message, he read these two verses. Is it important for us to obey God's word? Is it? Ecclesiastes 11, 13 and 14. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Keep his commandments regarding righteousness and true religion and relationships and racism. We will keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Every person. All of us. Young and old. Our background. Well, every one of us today. For God will bring every act of, to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. 
that's why some of us should pray, God, you're going to judge me, but in wrath remember mercy. Because there is judgment for our sin. It's our method to admonish and teach. But notice the third thing, with all wisdom. With all wisdom. In other words, to study ways to effectively share the gospel and teach the word of God. One author wrote, we as God's servants, in strict compliance to his will and word of God, use the best means to reach the highest goals. So how do you reach teenagers today? How do you reach older people? How do you reach the rich and the poor? How do you reach people addicted to drugs and alcohol and to sex and to to the internet and to sports? Answer, we reach them by living the life of Christ as salt and light in a dark, wicked world, which is not the gospel, but which opens the door for us to share the gospel. Remember Romans 1.16, for the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And as we live a life of Christ and we reach out to others using the best means possible, we're doing that that they might know Christ. Living that way is not the gospel, but it opens the door for us to share the gospel. In the 1980s, our ministry began a, a work among prisoners. And we really hadn't done prison ministry before. We went to a local jail in Manila. Manila is made up of 16 cities. There's Manila, and Greater Manila has 16 other cities, 25 million people. We went to a jail in one of the cities called Kalaokan. And it was a, we, we, we went there because one of our workers had led two Christ, had led two men, two prisoners to Christ in that jail. So we wanted to have a Christmas party for them and all of a sudden, they expanded to all 225 prisoners. And so we got permission to go in. There were about 15 or 20 of us, on the, uh, Filipinos and myself. Uh, we went in, and uh, the 25, 225 men and women, they, they brought them all out. Some of them were violent murderers or rapists and so forth, and they had handcuffs and shackles. And they were sitting in a certain area. They all lined them and set up on the basketball court. And they had a like, platform. And uh, we were going to have a program. And the warden did not like us. Uh, I don't know why he gave permission for us to be there. And um, he said, you have 30 minutes. Well, we plan to feed these men and give them presents and, and bless them and, and talk to them personally. And how can we do all that in 30 minutes? And uh, I, I turned to him and I said, Sir, you know, I'm really nervous today and I've never worked with prisoners before and uh, we don't really know how this is going to be. But I said, but as we get involved, uh, our time may slip away from us. So I said, and I held up my hand. I didn't have a watch. And I said, I said, Sir, I don't, I don't have a watch. And, and so I tell you what, would it be okay if you just told us when to stop? So he reluctantly agreed. Okay, I'll tell you when to stop. So we, we again start. We, we fed these prisoners. Oh, by the way, I said to the prisoner, I said, by the way, it's wonderful that the warden has given us permission to have this party for you today. Let's give him a round of applause. It was so funny seeing these guys in handcuffs, you know, clapping. And this warden felt these guys probably never clapped for him before. So we went to one side and we started. We sang shared the gospel, sang, gave everybody a meal, sang some more, shared the gospel, played games. Can you imagine playing games with guys in handcuffs and shackles? Played games, shared the gospel, talked to individuals, saw these people coming to faith in Christ, responding to the good news of Christ, Simply because if somebody came in and gave them a meal and loved them and, and, and cared for them over, over a three-hour period. <laughs> and that day, 140 came to faith in Christ. And I know that's kind of, you know, kind of an exceptional illustration, but God used that method of kindness to break through these hard hearts. And they responded to the good news of Christ. With all wisdom. Our method to admonish and teach with all wisdom. Notice my third point, number three, verse 28. 
that we may present every man complete, mature in Christ. The purpose of God is to take sinners and save them, put them into His church, and set them on the road to sanctification to glorify His Son. As believers, we are to continue to grow in faith. Ephesians 4.15 says, Speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up. So may I ask you a personal question today? Are you grown up? Are you a more mature Christian today than you were this time last year? Some of you have known Christ for several years now. Have you become more and more like Him, humble and holy and honest and compassionate and kind and, and generous and, and easy to get along with? Or have you become more like our enemy who would have you to be proud and selfish and racist and stubborn and covetous and hard and self-centered? You know, we know that we learn some of our best growing experiences through difficulty, don't we? But many of us, instead of allowing the difficult situation, whether it's death or discouragement or separation or sadness or sickness, to make us better, we become bitter and depressed, depressed and even angry. Remember, any problem or pain or difficulty that God brings into your life is for your good and for His glory. To suffer for Christ's sake is to go through any difficulty with trust in God. It's a kingly privilege. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His sake. Now, I don't like this any more than you do. But the Scripture says that salvation and suffering go hand in hand. They are a gift of God. Christians experience the storms of life, but God is the one who controls the wind and the waves. When our son Robbie became engaged to Deanna, it was their senior year in college in San Diego. And I was having speaking uh, missions conference and and uh, one night after one of the meetings it was late and uh, I took them out to a uh, Mexican meal oh San Diego got the best Mexican food in the world and uh, took them out for a Mexican meal to celebrate we had a wonderful time to celebrate their engagement and and uh, I couldn't eat uh, because I had uh, I was going through chemotherapy for my cancer and uh, I was a mess I was sick. My mouth was all blistered, bleedy. My hands would bleed all the time. My toes would bleed. I, I was just a mess because of the chemotherapy. I shouldn't have been speaking at a conference. And, but we had a wonderful time. And on the way, they were taking me back to where I was staying. And on the way back, I noticed his, his, his gas gauge was empty. I said, Robbie, we better stop and get some gas. So we passed several stations. I said, what are you doing? He said, Dad, I only buy Chevron. What's wrong with some of these people? <laughs> and, and, and so finally we found a Chevron station, and, and they filled up with gas. And I went in to pay. They were college students. They didn't have any money. Went in to pay, and as I walked in the door, my thumb began to bleed. I took out my handkerchief and put it, put it around my thumb. And the lady behind the counter, she said, oh, what's wrong? I said, oh, it just does that. She said, what do you mean it just does that? And I said, well, I'm going through chemotherapy. Said, oh, sir, do you have cancer? And I said, well, yes, I do. She said, oh, I'm so sorry. Now, this lady, excuse me for saying this, this lady didn't look like she'd be sorry for anything. I mean, she looked like a professional wrestler. She had tattoos all over her body. She had pierced earrings or nose rings or whatever all over her body. I was wondering where her nose was and, her eyes and so forth. And she was a rough woman. And it didn't look like, the things coming out of her mouth didn't look like the, the person. So I'm so sorry. I said, ma'am, thank you. Appreciate your kindness. I said, i tell you the truth. I am so sick. I'd like to lie down on the floor and die. Because I'm going to heaven and I can hardly wait to get there. She said, oh, are you going to heaven? I said, yeah, are you going? She said, well, I don't think so. You know, I, 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 I'm in drug rehab, and 
of uh, heroin and cocaine and she lent me all these drugs. I didn't know what they were. And she's telling me all these things. I said, well, man, would you like to know how to go to heaven? And she says, oh, yes, I would. And so I started sharing the good news of Christ. Now, does this happen to you when you've finally got enough nerve to share the gospel? Everything goes wrong. Seemed like every car in San Diego drove up to get gas. <laughs> the phone started ringing and everything. And so I knew I wasn't going to have a chance to finish. So I took out a gospel track and I said, ma'am, read this. And it will tell you how you can turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ as Savior. And I remember walking out the door, and she held the track in her hand. And she says, thank you, mister, for talking to me tonight. Thank you for talking to me tonight. I went out and got in the car with Robbie and Deanna. Robbie was especially distraught with his father being so miserable with his sickness. And he cried a lot. He was just so concerned for me. And I said, Robbie... Do you know what happened in there? She says, yeah, Dad, I saw you talking to her. I saw her holding up the track. What happened? I said, Robbie, excuse me for being insensitive. You are concerned for my health. And I thank you for that. But son, look at the, the, look at the, look at the greater thing that happened tonight. That woman heard the gospel of Jesus Christ because I have cancer and my thumb bled. And my mouth was swollen. My mouth was all blistery. She saw that something was wrong. And that opened the door for her to ask, opened the door for me to share the good news of Christ. I said, son, let me ask you a question. What's more important? Your dad having good health and even you having a father? Or that woman turning from sin and trusting Jesus as Savior? So which is more important? Health and happiness, safety, or a holy life, and someone's salvation. Someone said, God takes no pleasure in our pain. However, he takes great pleasure in our development. Suffering is never the goal. It's simply one of the roads we travel to bring glory to God. My time is up, so let me just briefly mention the last point. Number four, our message, our method, our motive... And number four, our means. Verse 29. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. Note the words I labor. To reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to take blood, tears, and sweat. It's going to take hard work. The Lord Jesus said, Work for the night is coming when no one will have an opportunity to work anymore. But if we work, but remember, we work because he commands, but we obey, he empowers. We work because he enables. It is his work. We work, but he does it all. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I labor striving according to his power, which mightily works within us. Let me close. Years ago, we had a short-term worker. His name was Mark McDowell. Some of you heard this story. Mark McDowell was from Chicago. He's going to Moody Bible Institute, and he came over to help us build a, a vocational discipleship and vocational training center for street kids. And when all the other builders went home, he, he stayed with us for two weeks. He wanted to work with the poor for two weeks to see if God might be calling him to work with the extreme poor. So we found a place for him to stay in a slum area, a squatted area, a place with no electricity, no water, no sanity, nothing. It was, it was the pit. It was like a pigsty. And he stayed there for two weeks. And during the day, he, would, we would, uh, he had a, a Christian repair ministry. In other words, he repaired houses and put in screens and doors and built steps and helped, uh, helped these extremely poor people and, get their houses together, put in a, 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 a sewer system down the middle of the place, really open. brought in water, got, got electricity brought in. He, he did all these things. And in the evening, after he did all this work, he was very shy, uh, but people would gather around and ask him, well, why are you doing this? And in a shy way, he began to say, well, I'm doing this because of the love of Christ. I want you to know him. And he began to share the gospel. And this man came to Christ, and this man came to the Savior, and this lady, another lady, another lady. 
Uh, when he left in two weeks, there were about 20 ladies who had come to faith in Christ. And so uh, a missionary lady, a friend of ours, went down into that slum area to disciple these 20 people who had come to Christ, these 20 ladies. And it was Easter time, and they had a, a lesson on, on the resurrection. And they were so excited that they serve a living Savior. And, and uh, at the end of the lesson, uh, the missionary simply asked them a rhetorical question. Now as we close our lesson today, let me repeat. Let me ask the question. What is the greatest event in all of history? Fully expecting them to say the resurrection. They just had a lesson on it. But they began to discuss among themselves. And all of a sudden, they got all excited. And then one of them turned to the teacher and said, that's an easy question. The greatest event in all of history was when Mark McDowell came to live with us. When Mark McDowell came to live with us. Were they wrong? Were they wrong? No. The resurrected Christ moved into that little slum area through the person of Mark McDowell who came with the glorious message of the resurrected Savior. So perhaps God will lead some of you to move to Manila with the gospel, to move to Mexico City or Malawi or Madrid or Minneapolis or Cuba or Calgary or Chicago or Seattle or Shanghai or Stalingrad or South Africa. Why not? Why not? For the purpose to reach those around you as well as beyond you with the glorious message of the resurrected Savior, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Father, we trust that you will take these stammering words and from Colossians and you burn them into our hearts of our responsibility not only to live a life of righteousness to, but also to care for those around us as well as beyond us especially that we might live a life of Christ that we may preach the resurrected life of Christ that people may turn from sin and trust Jesus Christ the Savior in his name we pray Amen